0: Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast PitchFest 2020 series. I'm Nick Sciarelli, thanks for joining me. Late last year, OIO ran the Ocean Impact PitchFest 2020. We were inundated with almost 200 applications from 38 countries and were blown away by the incredible breadth and quality of ideas and ventures that applied, all trying to make a positive impact on planet ocean. Over the course of this PitchFest 2020 series, We'll dive into the challenge and opportunity areas that each of the finalists are working on, find out about their unique solution, and discuss the key challenges and learnings they've encountered on their journey so far. We'll also discuss their why, their motivation for working towards a healthy ocean, what the road ahead looks like for them, and how you, the listener, might be able to support their journey. This week, I'm talking to Sara Andriotti. Sara has been involved in marine biology since the age of 16, when she started working as a volunteer at the Natural Marine Reserve of Miramare in Trieste, Italy. In 2008 she completed a Masters of Science in Marine Biology at the University of Trieste and in 2009 she began working in South Africa to create a database of great white sharks based on photos of their dorsal fins. The project evolved to include genetic data for a PhD at Stellenbosch University, and after six years of fieldwork, Sarah had managed to catalogue 426 white sharks from over 5,000 photos and collected more than 300 genetic samples. She was awarded a PhD for this research in March 2015. Today, Sarah is the co-founder and chief operations officer of the South African-based startup Shark SharkSafe Barrier. SharkSafe Barrier's mission is to provide the tools for an environmentally friendly coexistence between sharks and humans. SharkSafe Barrier provides a novel and sustainable solution to shark and human protection through a patented technology that incorporates a magnetic field with a kelp forest mimicking structure where sharks are deterred without affecting other marine life. Shark Safe Barrier is scientifically proven to deter both bull sharks and great white sharks, requires minimal maintenance, and in addition, the infrastructure over time becomes an artificial reef protecting marine life and enhancing biomass. In 2020, Shark Safe Barrier was one of a number of innovations featured in a proposal to the Queensland Government as cost effective and non lethal alternatives to the very outdated shark nets used at popular Queensland beaches. New South Wales and Western Australia being the other Australian states that are still using lethal shark nets. Shark nets are indiscriminate killers of a variety of marine life, including turtles, dolphins, whales, and sharks. And the idea that they keep humans safe from negative shark interactions is not supported by credible science. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Sarah Andriotti on the Ocean Impact Podcast Pitchfest 2020 series
1: can take
0: the ocean out of me good morning Sarah and welcome to the ocean impact podcast it's great to have you with us today
1: thank you for inviting Nick
0: no special problem to be here. at all no problem um, I'm excited for this discussion actually it's um it was one of the more unique initiatives amongst the PitchFest finalists in that it directly um, it targeted a biodiversity problem, and with and within that, it actually you know directly targets the problem of of sharks, and specifically we're talking about um, what sometimes we refer to as negative um, human shark interactions, and. And in Australia, this is a huge topic of conversation and it has been for some time because we're one of the few countries in the world that has uh, shark nets, which are uh, intended at least to basically keep people and and sharks separate in in major populated areas. So we have them uh, in Western Australia and we have them throughout New South Wales and Queensland. And, you know, this this problem, if you like, and this topic has been—it's um, quite polarizing. Uh, there's a lot of people that want to see these nets gone, and um, and you, you, Sarah, are trying to solve that exact problem with um, technology, which is fantastic. So, um, give us give us the um, the backstory about the product and the tech and, and what you're trying to do.
1: Sure. Well, the. This problem we're trying to solve is exactly what you said, you know, the shark net. And one of the biggest misconceptions that people have is thinking that these nets are being deployed at sea to keep sharks away from people. In fact, these nets are also called gill nets and they are designed to kill as many sharks as possible with the concept that the more sharks are going to kill, the less encounter between sharks and people you're going to see and that is a concept that goes back to 1937. So we've got this going for for decades where with the technology we developed here in South Africa, uh, we are trying to copy from nature what shark can recognize naturally as a barrier and keep them actually separated from people without killing marine life because that is the other problem with the nets. They are not targeting just shark. These shark nets are also killing a lot of marine mammals and turtles and dolphins, I mean, you, you name it. And what we are doing with that technology called the shark safe barrier is merging two well-known shark deterrents. And one is the visual appearance of a thick forest of kelp, these large brown seaweeds that we have in South Africa and white sharks in particular we don't like to get inside this kelp forest. So we biomimic that appearance of a thick forest of kelp. And then we use another shark deterrent, which is very large ceramic magnets. And magnetism is also the deterrent for sharks because they have a sixth sense around their eye and around their nose that allows them to detect very minute magnetic and electric field. Very large magnet. You must imagine like a fridge magnet, but really big. a lot of them in that pipe that looks like uh, a thick forest of kelp. So when the shark comes visually, it doesn't like what he's seeing. That is where the biomimicry comes in. But if it comes too close, like within a meter of range, then the strong magnets pushes the shark away by overwhelming that sense that they only sharks have. So that is the concept behind the shark head barrier. And we tested it and proved that it's quite effective. We never had a sharp
0: crossing it in all the tests. So let's just paint the picture f- uh, for the listeners, Sarah. It's if I'm not wrong, um, we we think about uh, concrete blocks along the seafloor and at you know what are we talking meter, half meter, two meter intervals. You would have a uh, a chain, I suppose, with a with the pipe that you're talking about. Um, <laughs>
1: yes and no. Well, no? we, we tried chains, so we discovered that the sea has is really good at breaking things. So the sea has been breaking our prototypes very effectively for the first three or four years before we got to a design that is strong enough to withstand the strong wave condition of you know we call it the Cape of Storm in South Africa for for no reason um and we tried chain but the sea managed to open the shackle that was keeping the chains together Uh, we tried rope and then we had muscle eating through the ropes and we tried fan belt so we tried a lot of different material and and system to attach this pipe now imagine um, a, a long black pipe that is attached to the bottom and the anchorage depends to the seafloor, because every beach is different. So if we have a sandy seafloor, then we have one type of anchorage. If we have a rocky seafloor, then we have something different. So the anchorage per se changes depending on how the seafloor looks like. And then you attach the pipes. The pipes are the same, uh, irrespectively of the seafloor. The pipes is attached at the bottom and goes all the way to the surface and sticks out of the water by Approximately half a meter in high tide. And then imagine that you have a row of these pipes that are about, and every second pipe, the pipe is magnetized. That way, you have the external row of pipe creating this large magnetic field that also doesn't require any uh, power source. Like I mentioned, it's like a big fridge magnet, a lot of them. And you have this external row of pipe 50 centimeter apart. Then you have a second row of pipe behind it, and the pipes are just one meter apart and they are staggered and don't contain magnets. Then you have another row of pipes, also one meter apart, also staggered. And then you have a fourth row of pipe. So the idea of re- creating a thick forest of cow is why we have multiple rows installed, but also. Uh, although we did test the barrier to have as little as two rows and being still effective, for human safety, we want to be redundant. We want to have four rows of pipe. So we really have the appearance of a thick forest of kelp. And if by chance, you know, one or two pipes break off during a big storm, we still have um, barrier that is intact and we won't have holes uh, happening. So that's why we have so, these four rows, and they're all staggered. And the pipes are also quite flexible. They have two components um, shorter pipe at the bottom, a flexible joint, and then the longer pipe. So when the waves come, they do dance, um, creating an effect that looks a lot like a kelp forest, which was the whole idea.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Tell us about where you've done your, your testing, Sarah. What, what, um, what species of, of sharks and what locations and what were the, what were the results?
1: Well, we started this test, test in 2012. We did test uh, a little bit at the time. So the first group of tests was to check uh, which magnet works best, and that was Dr. Craig O'Connell's work in the Bahamas with the bull shark. Then Dr. O'Connell came to South Africa, we worked together to check if these large magnets work uh, with the great white as well. And then they work. And it was a very basic test, you know, it is we made attached to it and another one without fish and a magnet attached to it. And then you count how many times the shark go and eat the fish without the magnet and how many times it eat the fish with the magnet. and and that shows that they don't like the magnet, step one. Then step two was putting uh, an array of pipes with the magnet inside to show, and and put fish on the other side, up current, so that the smell of the fish goes through the pipe and get dragged down current. So when a shark comes, he has two options. He can swim through the pipe, that is the shortest way to come to the fish, or he can swim around it and spend energy to go around our of pipe to come to the fish. And every single time the shark would do that, would instead of going straight, it would have take the time to go around. So by showing we can modify the shark behavior, we thought that was enough, you know, to start building these structure at sea. But then some other colleagues, you know, that's how science work. Uh, we always uh, have to you know, com- complain and, Know, criticize other people's work because that is uh, that's a scientific word some colleague mentioned that we actually didn't prove that we can exclude shark from our area we only prove that we can modify the swimming but maybe if we create a large enclosure and we put the fish in between inside the enclosure the shark that has no option then going through the pipe will then go through the pipes so that was a another array of experiment in South Africa with the Great White and in the Bahamas with the bull shark where we created enclosure and we put the fish in the middle and recorded the shark behavior. Coming and going around, around our enclosure that was, imagine a square that is maybe like 13 meter uh, by 13 meters, so quite large, with a barrier all around and the fish in between inside the square with the camera, and every time they would they come, swim around, 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 and then leave. So they definitely don't, don't swim through these pipes. And and that was that's why it took so long, because we were recording all the sharp behaviour and then we got the results published in the scientific journal.
0: Gotcha. Sorry, you just cut out for a moment there, Sarah. Have I still got you?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You
0: okay.
1: Excellent. I I I stopped myself because uh, I'm a scientist, so I can keep on talking about uh, the science behind it forever. And uh, I learned, you know, once I started doing a bit of this entrepreneurship <laughs> thing that <but> nobody cared. <laughs> you just go. Does it work? Can we sell it? And I'm like, but mm-hmm. but CD No you know, no we, <laughs>
0: <and> <laughs> <laughs> we want to hear both sides. I think there's listeners that are interested in the commercialization part and the innovation part, but you know, I don't think there's a product um, without the science behind why it works. So, you know, what are we here talking about? We're here essentially talking about looking after sharks and looking after people. But you've also um, articulated to me that, you know, this isn't just uh, looking after sharks and looking after people. This is also looking after profits because around the world, we're spending a hell of a lot of money. Governments are spending a hell of a lot of money Um on this idea that they're keeping people safe with these nets that, by the way, um, uh, arguably don't work. Um, in fact, um, you know, they're indiscriminate killers of all types of marine life. I think the statistic that you, that you um, shared with me just prior to hitting record was that uh, over a 20 year period in New South Wales, up to 2017, if I'm not wrong, is it that 4,000 marine animals were killed by nets, 60% were sharks, and 40% yes. were whales, dolphins and turtles mostly. Yes. Um, and, and
1: within sharks, I mean, not all sharks are responsible for um, no, human accident. The majority of shark species, and we are talking in like five, 600 species in the world, they are not harmful. Whatsoever. There are very few species that are involved um, with shark and human incidents. Um, And it just doesn't make sense in my mind that we're killing so many marine species because us as humans became so afraid about two or three top predators.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and look, let's not even talk about the ecosystem benefits and the value that they provide for a moment. I mean, just looking at tourism alone, I mean, it's a staggering amount of um, of income that's derived from marine life and from sharks. People want to interact with these animals when it's safe uh, to do Absolutely. so, and around the world, it's it's big money. What's um, uh, you know, well, you shared some of these statistics earlier, and, and forgive me um, if I, if I get some of these wrong, but there was a study that you found that talked about the value of um, a, a, an alive shark versus a mm-hmm. dead shark. Can you can you step yes. us through that?
1: So, yeah, that was a study done back in 2015 where just for Palau, you know, this island in the Pacific, they calculated how much a reef shark is worth to the ecotourism industry per year by being alive, by having people that want to die with it and being in the water with the these sharks, and they calculated around $179,000 per year, per shark, and they also look at how long one of these shark can live, and for the lifespan of the shark is about $1.9 million um, for the local community per shark In during the lifespan. If we, they will kill the shark and sell it, it's about $108, and then the animal is dead. So every every study that look into the benefit of keeping these animals alive, financial benefit, not just the ecological benefit for the environment. Um, every single study showing how an alive shark is a lot more worthy to be mm. kept alive than to be killed and, and eaten up. For you know the white shark in South Africa uh, in the little towns by Town in the south of Africa, they also calculated that for the cage diving industry that started up in the late 90s or early 90s, just because they had this hotspot for white shark, in 2003 they calculated that animals were worth 4.4 million dollars per year to the town, and that is a massive amount. And, you know, is there is also a dominant factor So that is how much money the ecotourism can make. Mm. But then imagine all of the, you know, souvenir shop and bed and breakfast and restaurant uh, becomes um, economical resource for the town that goes beyond just the tourism
0: operator. Mm. Yeah, we have a place, uh, Port Lincoln, down in South Australia, which is uh, a beautiful part of the world, but. Um, and I'd be interested if anyone knows the statistics. Reach out. I'd, I'd be interested to know what uh, percentage of uh, tourism GDP does the shark tour industry bring to Port Lincoln in Australia? Yeah. Um, and, and similarly to um, uh, the, the Cape Town region of, of South Africa as well. Um,
1: and, I think and you know, funny shortcuts. enough. Yeah, and funny enough, when you speak about shark and tourism, it, it is very um, you have very polarized opinion about it because you have. And, and most of the people that have been seeing a shark underwater, the water in all the diver community, they just can't wait to be in the water with a shark again because they're such incredible majestic animals to, to dive with. But then if you look at the general tourism um, and shark, then the polarized opinion is the sharks are keeping the tourism away. A little island in the Reunion, or the Reunion Island is a little French island next to um, Mauritius. And what happened there is since 2011, they started having more shark accidents than before, and they had to close the beaches, and they told people they cannot get in the water anymore. So since 2011, there was also a study there showing that every year this town lost uh, well, this, the whole island, they lost something around 20 million euro per year in tourism revenue because every time there was a shark accident, 40% of the booking disappeared. There was a drop of 40% of the tourism booking. So here is where, you know, to, to the, the, you have a bunch of tourists that really want to see shark and another group that really don't want to see shark. So that is where I hope Shark SharkSafe is going to provide a solution to keep shark away from the and keep the animals alive for the tourists that do want to play with them.
0: Mm. So tell, tell me, Sarah, where are you? Where are you targeting? I mean, are we are we talking about areas where there's uh, an existing human shark interaction problem? Um, are they your target markets? How, how do you think about your target markets and 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 who your customers are as well? Who ultimately will will pay you uh, for this?
1: So what we're targeting first are countries and council and municipalities where there is already money invested into killing the sharks. So South Africa has shark net and drumline that are also another. Fishing gear used to reduce the number of sharks in the area, and we have uh, Australia and now the Union Island and New Caledonia. These are all areas where the government is already spending money to kill shark as a management um, System, so we don't want to put the people that are killing the shark out of job We want to put the people that are killing the shark Um, to change the way they are doing their work. So instead of getting them to kill sharks, pay them to clean the pipes uh, of the barrier. You know, they just need to change the way they're doing things. They already have the people, the boat, they have all of this set up in place and they're already getting paid for it. So it's just changing how sharks, the shark so-called shark problem is going to be managed so yeah our clients are probably going to be local council municipality but also you know hotel owner if you have someone that owns hotel and has a beach and wants to keep his tourists safe and is willing to to have a shark safe enclosure that can also be a potential customer for us
0: how do you see or what do you see as the tipping point sarah for this Uh, for councils essentially to start taking um, action here. Because, I mean, in Australia, we've seen resistance and opposition to nets only gather momentum uh, from a community perspective. As people become uh, more educated about the problem, I think social media has been really good because we can actually start to... Uh, visualise the problem. You know, we've, we can we can see uh, marine life caught in nets uh, where there's you know freedom of information acts which provide mm-hmm. us with the stats uh, around all this sort of stuff. You know, um, but we're still seeing a reluctance from politicians to, I suppose, be gutsy enough to make the decision. What I yeah. mean wh- is, it a tipping point game? Do you think what's go- what's going to help us to get to the tipping point? And is it the sort of thing that we say, you know, uh, Australia makes a decision to look at non-lethal technology such as yours, do other countries follow suit? Does it, become a, does it become a case of the dominoes falling over at that point?
1: Yes, I think this will be the tipping point for us to install the barrier on the beach and show that it does make a difference. It does keep the sharks away it creates jobs for the local people that are going to look after the technology and it will become a tourism attraction on its own uh, just because you know, the moment you put something in the water then you create some artificial reef scenario and animals will start growing on the anchorage system. So if we will just put this barrier to protect one beach, wherever that's gonna be, um, then we can prove that the technology is doing exactly what it is expected to do, and then it would be easier for the next municipality to take it on, and and go with it. And then the next should create a domino effect. I'm not expecting my work of convincing municipality to install it getting much easier because that would be you know be very much optimistic. But eventually, it, I think that would can become the the you how, how in the future
0: we're going to manage sharks. Yeah, I think we definitely need, I mean, I say that momentum's built with opposition to shark nets. Um, yeah. You know, we need to keep building on that momentum. I think there's always um, more that can be done and said, more lobbying and more pressure put on our elected yeah. representatives. Um, probably worth mentioning that earlier or, or, or last year, um, our, our friend Andre at um Uh, the producer behind Envoy Shark Cull submitted a proposal that you were a part of. You were one of the technologies um, uh, mentioned in in this report. He submitted a a report to the Queensland uh, Government around um, a variety of non-lethal innovations that could replace shark nets. And... The interesting thing that I found about that report was that it wasn't talking about just the idea about um, uh, saving marine life, it was talking about how the, the economics stacked up. So yeah. it, it fully costed out uh, a variety of different solutions that are here and now, we're not talking about you know airy-fairy stuff that's in concept, we're talking about solutions that exist today that um, may have uh, a capex uh, upfront capital cost Associated with them, but over a reasonable lifetime, and I'm not talking, you know, 100 years. I'm talking, you know, five to 10 years. We're talking about getting payback um, from these things, um, or or at least uh, cost reductions from the cost to maintain the existing system of nets um, that you know we know aren't aren't doing the job that the public think that they're they're Mm -hmm. doing. you know, we're yet to see um, the Queensland government move on that report, um, uh-huh. but I think that's definitely the way to go. In my opinion, we've got to, yeah. you know, we've got to tackle the the issue and lobby from every angle and it's that it, there needs to Agreed. be. We need to talk the language that politicians are used to speaking and that's jobs, that's economics, that's GDP, uh-huh. uh, as well as the, um, you know, uh, harm, uh, less harmful to marine life and protecting uh, human human life.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And it must be, you know, a a teamwork cannot just be us advocating for that change. It must come very much, um, must be a sort of movement, a bottom-up movement happening where a lot and more and more and more people ask for this way of tackling the shark issue to change. And I I know I'm I'm representing the shark's head barrier, but personally, whatever system they're going to implement that will keep the shark safe, with it. You know, is there isn't a solution that fits it all. I think the barrier has very good potential for some areas, but every beach and every bay is different. So mm-hmm. to tackle and find the most cost-effective and safe solution, depending on how the bay looks like, that would be the way forward, which is also why it's so difficult for me when they ask me how much does the barrier cost? And it's like trying to cost um, a bridge. It depends on how big the river is and how strong the current is, and in our case, what the seabed looks like. Mm-hmm. We have to custom build this technology to be in harmony with the existing uh, nature that we will find in each area. And, yeah. and then we can cost it. But yeah, I don't think there is a, you know, that they call someone called the Chasse Barrier the silver bullet. And I think it could become the silver bullet for a lot of area, but doesn't necessarily need to be the only solution, as long as the shark don't get killed.
0: <laughs> I love that attitude, Sarah. And that's in fact it's probably a good segue for us to take a, a a step back if you like. Um so your your number one priority is not to dominate the marketplace with this product. You you're you're one of a number of solutions and um you know your your priority is seeing um you know, it's the protection of sharks. So let's let's take a step back for a moment. Tell us where your love of sharks came from. And let's talk about your background as, as a scientist, and you know how you found yourself in this position now, where you're driving a, a, a tech startup, if you like.
1: <laughs> well, that that came, um, yeah, by by almost by chance, really. I I love sharks, and I love I wanted to be a marine biologist since I was like eight or nine years old when I discovered the, the world and the job. Uh, and in my mind, you know, I love the ocean, I love the animals. At nine years of age, I, I learned for the first time that there is a job where they pay you to work with animals at sea. And I thought that was amazing, I want to do that. And I wanted to do that ever since. And then, I, I you know, my, my schooling and my university up until the master in marine biology was done in Italy. But At the end of the master's degree in marine biology, I met a South African conservationist, his name is Michael Ratzen, who had been advocating for the protection of white sharks uh, since the mid-90s, and they've been doing um, all sorts of documentaries, swimming with the shark out of the cage, and free diving with them, and showing how if you communicate with these animals correctly in the right condition, they're not the mindless killer machine that Hollywood wants us to believe. So I met him and I saw that the guy can basically speak shark. He was communicating peacefully with the animals and the animals were responding nicely. So I begged him to work with him because I was much interested in the shark behavior aspect. And then I found myself in South Africa doing shark genetic and population identification and population estimate because a lot of other people was working on shark behavior. So it was really a request from the government to take up the genetic aspect of the study. And that is what my PhD was in South Africa, the University of Stellenbosch. So I'm a marine biologist at heart. And as I was working on the sharp population number and the you know, photo identification of the dorsal fin, taking genetic samples with Mike Rutten. that is where Dr. O'Connor came to South Africa as well testing his magnets with the sharks. And Mike Ratzel is the guy that was doing all the filming, free diving with the sharks. And he also realized that um, if you have a thick forest of kelp behind your back, the sharks won't cross it. So you could film them uh, keeping the kelp behind his back, knowing that the sharks won't cross it. And that is where the sharks and barrier idea started uh, being formed with Craig's magnet and Mike's kelp idea and we had the first, you know, calc barrier concept uh, design back in 2012 uh, with the magnets. You know, without the magnets, the, the concept goes also way back. But I found myself helping out with that uh, research while I was doing my PhD because I was uh, in South Africa, I had access to the field work, so I was doing the diving, switching on the GoPro, and doing that part, and then. At Was tested and everything worked out. Um, And in 2015, I finished my PhD. And the University of Stellenbosch, who patented the technology by then, asked me to uh, sell it. (laughs) And and I was a bit uh, taken aback because I'm a scientist. So now you want me to, to learn business. And I know I have absolutely no clue of what business is about. I've been. No, surviving on bursaries when you get a bursary for a project and then the money must finish at the end of the project so that you can ask for another bursary then i get into this new world when they ask me about my profit and i'm like what, what profit what <laughs> what do you mean what what <laughs> do you mean with profit so yeah it was a big learning curve to try and learn learn the, the wording and um how how the, the business world works and no, strangely enough, I found, I did a business accelerator program called Clean Tech uh, in 2017, Clean Tech Open. And then I realized that actually there are some similarities in between science and business and that allow my brain to sort of cope with it. And the, this business accelerator program was call it, um, calling it validation. So validate everything. You think you have enough clients, but did you validate that? Did you check? Did you ask how many people wants to buy your product? You think you have a global market, but did you check that? And that is very much what science do. You know, you need to collect the data first. Um, you know, you, you have an hypothesis, but then you have to collect the data. You have to analyze them. Then you get your result, and then you can draw your conclusion. And business wise, only then you can make informed decision so it, it wasn't that different as soon as someone mentioned it to me. And that mm. is how I found myself doing what I'm doing now.
0: That's great. I mean, yeah, some people would say that um, running a startup is really a series of small experiments. And in fact, the term startup science is quite commonly used as well to talk about the range of, of experiments and tools that um, – I suppose people would encourage founders to use on a daily basis because when your resources are small, you know, you have to, you can't afford to be uh, wasting too much time heading in one course yeah. of direction because it could be fatal uh, finding yeah. out too late that that wasn't the right course of action. So we we test everything, we experiment, we come back and, and review the, those tests. We check all of our assumptions and before we, you know, proceed on a, on a course okay. and um are very much like it, science.
1: It is the same, and you know, also being prepared for things to go terribly wrong, regardless of the effort. That's very much what happened during a PhD, mostly on genetics. Sometimes you don't know why your PCR machine is not giving you any amplification, and you wonder if it is because of the color of your T-shirt. Um, you no, know, sometimes just things just go wrong, and then you have to try it again, a bit differently, and then it goes right again. So.
0: And, and was that? Was that the main crux of it? Um, to 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 decide to go down the business road here and commercialize this was this really was that really done with a view to uh, avoiding the pitfalls of grant funding and applications for new grants and funding drying up? Was that a way to say, right, if we want to do this and we want to be successful and do this at scale, really the only way to do it is to find sustainable sources of funding, and that's by commercializing and working out who is going to pay for this
1: eventually yes that was also one of the reasons for going full force into building this company because there are a lot of funding opportunities out there but they normally require days of filling up application form and the amount of funding that you get are really tiny so you can really do small very tiny projects all at once it's very difficult to get large funding for shark research. I mean, if I was in human uh, me- medication, that is different, I guess. But, um, you know, whales work, I'm, I think, I'm assuming now, that marine mammals are normally well funded compared to sharks. Uh, sharks is, is just more challenging because um, people like to support other people and people like to connect with other, with certain species. uh, It is challenging to get people to connect with sharks so the funding are limited and in my mind if we get shark safe up off the ground to become a really nicely profitable company then I can have enough money to support all the research on sharks that needed to be done and I'm I'm not saying it's going to be less stressful than doing an application but it should work in the long term a lot better and allow for a mo- lot more research to to be sponsored.
0: Mm. So,
1: yeah, That's but, but it took me a while. Yeah, it took me a while to get to take the reins of this because it's, yeah you know, it's, it's very different from what I was envisioning and you also, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me, I don't know if, how many other scientists will feel that way, but you feel like, um, you I grew up with the concept that I have my PhD, then you do maybe a couple of years as postdoc, then you get your position in the academic environment, you become a professor. You know, I was expecting it as a very linear um, career. The moment you got your PhD, you become a doctor, then you're doing your research, and then the university will hire you. And maybe that was true maybe 20, 30 years ago, but is no longer true. It's, it's a lot more difficult than that these days. And I had this concept that the people that abandoned the academic career to go into the, the business world was because they were not good enough at being academics. So I was feeling working on Shark Say as a personal failure for not being a good scientist. Which could, could also be true. Who knows? But the, the spice it took me it took me so long to decide. Okay, now let's let's try and do both. There can be a benefit for the research if we build up a company ultimately.
0: Yeah, we've talked about that previously, and it's definitely something that I want to interrogate a little bit more with my network of of scientists uh, in Australia, because one of the things that um, we've been looking at and uh, and talk to people about is that the, the rate of marine research commercialization is really low. It's really low globally and it's, and it's really low in Australia. Um, so, you know, thinking about how can we increase that? And I suppose the starting point for the thinking is that, well, we need to give scientists more skills around entrepreneurship. You know, we need to give them the skills in addition to the science to make them feel comfortable to be Great storytellers, great business people—you mm-hmm. know—to be able to um, bring the bring the two together. But what you're saying is completely news to me, and <laughs> I, I'm interested to know how how uh, how wide that that mindset is. What you're saying is that there's there's almost um, a shame, if you like, for leaving academia, or or a sense of um, you know a sense of. Uh, <laughs> I don't personal know, shame failure.
1: might be the, Yeah, personal yeah, no, failure. Because yes, yes, At least for me, Well, unless I'm the only one thinking that way, which is, you know, sample size is key here. You must ask around. Um, I'm probably <laughs> exactly. the only one. Um, but personally, yeah, I was, you know, since I was a kid, I had this idea of, you know, doing your doctorate and then you're doing science. Now I'm doing science, so the university will hire me to do more science. And, and in the academic environment so stepping out of it to take care of marketing and clients and what business is about it did felt like yeah i was i won't say ashamed but it took me months to cope with it to say okay it's not it's not a bad idea and i mean the university actually pushed me in that direction at the best of their capability but i wasn't listening I was still feeling bad about it they they did try you know they were giving a bursary specifically to commercialize say and they were uh, supporting the the business side specifically so that we can commercialize and yeah it still took me months to say okay okay i I have to do that there is no one else picking that up
0: so you you had your concerns (laughs) I definitely am, and and in fact, if anyone, if any researchers and scientists in the marine space are out there listening to this, and have felt the same feeling that Sarah's described here, please reach out to me. I want to hear from you. I want to see how widespread this this train of thought is.
1: You know what? When we sign off our IP to the university, because now we're four inventors of the Shark's barriers, so we sign it uh, off to the university, so they because. It turned out it cost a lot to patent the technology nationally and internationally and I, my mind at that stage was great I'm going to sign it off to the university then the university that has a commercialization branch they're going to sell it they're going to do the whole, the whole thing we will just step back get our royalties you know and, and be scientists you know like I wanted and I didn't think I would have been involved into the commercialization of the technology whatsoever. So it came as a sur- that came as a surprise as well, that um, I have to learn business, it was just so uncomfortable for me. Uh, but, I'm, like I said, as I started now, I seriously started in 2017 really, is I, I don't, there, there are positives on that. It is also finding out that the technology is not just to save the sharks, but it also has a positive impact for the local community. Um, when I was in Reunion Island talking to the people there that had the problem with the sharks, realizing how traumatized these people are uh, because they lost maybe a cousin or a friend that uh, got beaten by a shark. So uh, it becomes, almost like a, a social mission beyond the ecological mission that started their the story. No?
0: Yeah, it's broadened your own perception of the impact, right? And a-
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, well, let's talk about how well you're doing. I know you're a, re- you're a reluctant entrepreneur, you've just been telling us, but, um, <laughs> you know, you must be doing something well because you've just raised your first external investment, I believe. So congratulations yes. for that. That's a big milestone. Um, Thank you. We will us... have
1: a full force, you know, release uh, soon. Um, but, you know, we are, because you're working with the university still, they're also shareholder in the company. Uh, every press release must be carefully thought of, and we are writing this up to give the big announcement. But, yes, we got the first investor in, and it's, it's exciting Excellent. to have... We found a like-minded investor, someone that joined us because he loves sharks and he wants to solve the problem. And that's what exactly.
0: I think that's key, right, in this sort of space, the impact space, I mean, and that could be social, environmental, whatever impact space you're in. When you're, when you're starting off, I think it's so important to surround yourself with those people that are, Really, really, really heavily aligned with your mission, not just people that write you a check. Um, because you yes. need that, you need patience, you need those people that will, um, you know, write out those times when things aren't going well for you and will be there to support you as much as they yes. can because they're as um, connected to your higher level mission, not just profits, uh, as they Absolutely. can possibly be. Sarah, let's talk about what you want to try and do. Uh, you've raised some money. What does the next twelve to twenty-four months look like? What, um, you know, what are your priorities uh, during this period?
1: Well, I keep on telling myself that if I managed to do something right last year, twenty twenty, with a startup, there is nothing that should scare me now from now on, because the twenty twenty wasn't the best year ever to, to to do something. But in between the Pitch Fest, being a finalist on the Pitch Fest, and the, funding that are coming um, I I think we're going to be busier and busier in the next um, 12 months because now our priorities of course land a sale to get um, installation built and it will probably come found be founded by a a combination of different entities in tourism you know government and probably overseas partners to do the first installation and another thing is um, still working very closely with our partner in Reunion Island, the shark security center, that two years ago wanted to test the barrier with their bull sharks. So they they bought 200 of our pipes. We went overseas, we got that installed in Reunion, and the uh, structure of these, just imagine a little square, is 10 meters by 10 meters on the inside. Uh, surrounded by the pipes. So they could also test it with their shark. And been holding very well for two years without breakages on the pipe. So now we need to work with them and see if there is a chance to reuse the technology for uh, protecting the beach. Then of course, Australia, um, we received you know, incredibly good support from the uh, Human Society International and Andre Borrell, and his uh, Shark Cow movie. So the idea is for the next few months is really focusing more outreach, get more people to know that the shark safe barrier could be a good solution, get more people to know what the problem is and eventually convince the government to pay for the installation. Easy, you know, I just have to do that.
0: Easy. <laughs> Easy oh excellent well look it seems like everything's going in the right direction for you and i couldn't be happier for you um this is badly needed um we know it's time you know all of the elements are there aren't they It just sort of feels like you know someone's bought all of the ingredients for dinner into the kitchen and we've just somehow got to find the recipe okay. to unlock uh unlock yeah. this right we just have
1: to open the oven yeah,
0: and it. start
1: cooking it <laughs>
0: Um, Hey, Sarah, um, we're almost out of time, but actually, can I just go back to something you you said earlier that I wanted to ask you about? Uh, You talked about uh, almost stumbling upon the idea about the biomimicry, uh, that being the the idea that sharks wouldn't proceed through a a kelp uh, curtain, if you like. And I think you said that uh, one of you was actually sitting in front of the kelp. And realised mm-hmm. the sharks wouldn't proceed. Was that a yeah. nervous Was that a nervous moment when you started testing that out to sit uh, to sit there and, and and see if they would proceed or not?
1: Uh, no, uh, I would say well that that guy was Mike Ratten, and it, if you speak with a lot of uh, spear fishermen in South Africa, they will also know that white sharks don't enter the thick forest of kelp if the kelp is loose, uh, there have been video showing sharks going through the corridor that the kelp can form if it is very loose, so if the stalks are quite separated from each other, but inside the thick forest of kelp they don't go. In fact there is a whole different ecosystem with other top predators in there and it is something well known in the spear fishing community. What Mike Rutten Uh, the the way his light bulb went on, was thinking of building a fake forest of kelp to replace the nets. And I will ask him if he was nervous the first time, but uh, personally when the first time we built the barrier and we were in the water, uh, you feel quite safe. Uh, And that is a feeling that and the response I got from every other dive that came with us and we had the white shark around. We got Sky News coming with um, Alex Crawford uh, at at some time, at some stage. Uh, She's an incredible uh, journalist from the UK and she died with us and we had this white shark around the bed and we were right inside the square and you just feel safe. You see the shark swimming by and you you feel that it's not going to cross it. And then of course we had to test it and we had to film it and we had the the fish inside, I won't say you are – none of the people I talked to had the, the thought crossing their mind thinking, oh, the shark is now going to break through the pipes. Mm. It also has a lot to do with the way the sharks swim in reality compared to how the sharks are portraying movies. Uh, in the movies, you see them breaking through everything, you know, eating boats and all of that CGI
0: thing. Perception. But in reality, that's a –
1: yeah, they just yes. swim around very calmly. They can get curious, but they, they don't have these ag- aggressive uh, behaviour that only Hollywood wants want us to show. Mm.
0: Yeah, see. that's definitely the impression I've had. I, I've been lucky enough to get down to um, uh, Port Lincoln and out to the Neptune Islands a couple of times now, and uh, my wife thought she was going to be scared out of her wits when I took her, and um, mm. I think she said it was one of the greatest – um, moment she's had in the wild and I mean for me it definitely was I mean it, it is because you're right. It's, it's absolute calmness when they when they come past you there's uh, there's a real sense of calm and, and an aura that you're with an animal that is just um, quite extraordinary
1: and they've been here for millions of years you know it will be such a shame for the next generation of human to not have the chance to encounter
0: yeah well, watch well I'm br-
1: in particular.
0: That's why I'm so glad that people like you, Sarah, are doing what you're doing, and why we're so happy to promote and celebrate and create a lot of awareness around what you're doing. Because we need these solutions, we need innovators like you to ensure that sharks are around for a hell of a lot longer, so that our kids, grandkids, and and future generations can enjoy them, and, and that we can reap the benefits of um, of them being at the top of uh, you know top of the ocean ecosystem. We 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 need it um, as much as um, uh, as much as anything else so thank you thanks. for doing all that you're doing it's um, been so great to talk to you today and um, keep in touch i wish you all the best
1: thank you so much excellent
0: thanks sarah <laughs> Cheers. bye thanks bye